0: I was going from almost 180 pounds down to about 125 pounds, 130 pounds. And because of that weight loss, I was actually being noticed and people wanted to talk to me. And so in a way, I was feeling accepted, but that was all external. And I was realizing that internally, there was a lot that wasn't dealt with. I can still feel the pain that it brought me because I was so lost. Um, and it's, I can't really put it into words because although I was older, I was still a child and I still needed, you know, my family, I still needed, I was still grasping for it to just be okay. And, and it seemed like wherever I turned, It was not okay. Whatever I did, it just did not fill that hole within me. And so eventually, I began to get to a point where I would often think about suicide, um, and I began to self-mutilate. I would cut myself, and it it seemed to... just put me in this hole of like, this is, this is what it is for me. You know, this is, this is all that I have and it's not going to change. You know, if it hasn't changed yet, it's not going to
1: change. Today, I'm having a conversation with Lindsay Clark. Lindsay's story includes a painful childhood, drug addiction, and how getting caught while robbing a house landed her in prison. Yet all of these broken places led her to a life of freedom. You might be curious as to how that could happen. And we have the answers in this conversation. I'm eager for you to hear Lindsay's story of help and hope for anyone who struggles with addiction. Lindsay is going to help us see that sometimes those most awful hurts are pathways to experiencing the very things for which we are desperately longing. So Lindsay, welcome. Lindsay, um, I wanna thank you for your willingness to share your story as a means of offering help and hope to others. Your exposure to drugs and alcohol addiction started when you were just a little girl. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so it started long ago when I was very young. My sister and I were actually raised by my grandmother. And this was because my mother was unable to raise us. She struggled with alcohol and drug addiction. And my father was not able to be in our lives at that time. And this was because at a very young age, um, as I understood it then, um, I, I was told that he wasn't a good person. In not so much verbal means by my grandmother um, and sometimes my mother, but I had the understanding that he just wasn't, you know, someone who should be around. And I never really understood that. So that's all I knew at that time. Um, and so he wasn't really in our lives when I was young. Also, another thing I struggled with when I was younger was this intense anger and confusion at my anger and rage, it it, nothing would actually bring it on. And no one really understood it. And my grandmother didn't really know how to deal with it. As I got older, you know, as you know, the years passed when I was younger, I started to really be confused about this anger. And I, I struggled with feeling like, you know, I was inadequate. And I was not able to be loved even by those closest to me as they couldn't understand. I felt very much like a black sheep, even at that age. And so I believe that this had to do with the absence of my parents. I I know that I always wanted everything to be okay, and I would have thoughts of that, wanting my parents around, and just wanting a family, longing for that, even though I didn't know what that was or what what that even meant, but it wasn't there. It, it was very much a void in my childhood. I also felt that living with my grandmother there, I learned over time that there was a standard set by my grandmother. I don't think that she was aware of it. But I very much felt like I could only be loved if I, I met this standard that she set, a perfectionist standard. And I strive towards that. And that's what I was taught. And that's what I learned as uh, very early. This was very much the beginning of uh, cultivating hopelessness in my life. And a very small hole of 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 a void in my heart and in my life that would grow as the years went by. And so, as I tried to find this standard of perfectionism and do, you know, all my efforts to work towards not being angry or trying to be acceptable and be loved, it never worked. It never filled that void. It just kind of left me feeling, even more hopeless because it seemed that it, it never worked, and and this was even before I was ten years old. I was very young at this time, so I'll
1: tell you, Lindsay, your story just breaks my heart because I've been around uh, young children who display that kind of anger or rage, or maybe they go to the other extreme where they just try to please um, and uh, in ways that are not appropriate and. It's because they're so broken, and I'm I'm imagining you as that little girl experiencing this kind of pain with nowhere to run. It seems like it just feels like too much for a child to carry at nine years of age. Something changed in your life, though. You went from your grandmother's home, that was one with rules, to living with your mom. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: My mom struggled, you know, with her alcoholism and drugs, but she did eventually go to rehab and she went a few times, but by the age of nine, she was doing well with it and well enough that I was able to move in with her. And so, although she was no longer drinking when I first moved in with her, she did begin to struggle off and on with alcohol still. And on top of that, she had a lot of mental health issues such as bipolar and depression. And with just me and her and, you know, the little apartment we were in, that's that was an exposure to that where I I didn't know how to help her and I didn't understand what it was. Um, And so this left, you know, my environment there with my mother, very open to no rules. I was allowed to basically do whatever I wanted. And this started at age nine, like I said. And so I went from, like you said, I went from a household with rules and standards to meet and feeling like I had to meet those standards to be loved to the opposite of the spectrum, the the way opposite extreme to no, no routine, no support, no stability, no security. And, um, as much as I loved my mother and wanted to be there with her, it really, um, drained me in a way that I did long for, um, structure there. And also at this time, my father through the courts, he did gain, um, visitation with me and my sister, um, Um. Actually, my sister went on to live with him, um, but I did see him every other weekend. And that proved hard for me as well to to process because I, I grew up believing that he was a person that didn't love me or he was unacceptable to be around and he was unlovable And here I see my dad in front of me and I longed for a relationship with him every time I saw him and I wanted to just embrace him and hug him. And, you know, that was my dad. But I always had this fear, this guard up in my heart that was built from years ago to where I felt kept back from that. Like I was restrained from that, like it wasn't safe to do that. and It was very confusing. So it it, it was hard to deal with that as well seemed that everything that I had wanted, it never really worked out the way I thought it would. It never filled that void. It just kind of left me hanging still and answering, you know, asking more questions. And so at this time, over the next few years, I turned to food as a comfort. And so in my mom's house, I could, you know, eat whatever I wanted. I could ask for whatever I wanted. And food became you know, that go to, to, to try to fill that void as it got larger and larger. And at that age, you know, when you're going from elementary school into middle school, it's, it's a big time of, you know, finding yourself and, you know, finding where you belong, you know, with the people you belong, your personality, you're growing and you're forming, you know, and to who you're supposed to be. And for me, it was, actually a time of more rejection and feeling worthless because as I gained weight, I was teased and bullied relentlessly every day. I remember coming to the point where I just didn't want to go to school because it was easier to just avoid that and either fake being sick because I had such anxiety and worry of going every day to school. And I I just wanted to be accepted and loved. I just wanted to grasp onto some kind of, you know, just to live. And it just still proved that all those efforts and all of my trying just, it never happened. It never happened the way that I had hoped it. And it left me very, very, feeling very alone and hopeless um, my mom wasn't able to be there for me because mentally she was struggling with her own issues. And so that was my time with, at my mom's house and it just left the void even bigger for
1: me. It just seems like so much for you to handle. And yet one of the reasons I know you're telling your story is because you know that your story is not unique, that there are many, many young people who are in similar circumstances, who are desperate to belong and desperate to be cared for, but it seems like no one is there. So you're this little girl, you're struggling to find your place and middle school, you're right, middle school can be hell on earth for a lot of kids. Uh, Wanting to belong, everything that should have created safety for you seemed to have the opposite effect. So now you're a teenager, and you bring all that pain into those teen years which can also be very uh, tumultuous how did you try to ease your pain during that season of life
0: well as a teenager i was nearing you know adulthood so i was able to try to do my own in finding myself whereas as, as a child i didn't have the tools you know i didn't know where to turn to as I was older and going into high school, I took it upon myself to lose weight, become healthy and exercise because I wanted to feel good about myself. I wanted to be long. And so that's what I did. Um, I began exercising, dieting, eating certain foods, not eating certain foods. And I just kind of did this on my own. But now that I look back, That became like an obsession and I did it to excess because once again, I was believing that this was it. This was what was going to make me be worthy of love and acceptance. And so it did open a door, you know, for me to, and it's amazing because people who used to reject me and not even notice me. You know, now that I had lost weight, I was going from almost 180 pounds down to about 125 pounds, 130 pounds. And because of that weight loss, I was actually being noticed and people wanted to talk to me. And so in a way I was feeling accepted, but that was all external. And I was realizing that internally there was a lot that wasn't dealt with. I can still feel the, the pain that it brought me because I was so lost. Um, and it's, I can't really put it into words because although I was older, I was still a child and I still needed, you know, my family, I still needed, I was still grasping for it to just be okay. and And it seemed like wherever I turned, it was not okay. Whatever I did, it just did not fill that hole within me. And so eventually I began to get to a point where I would often think about suicide. Um, and I began to self mutilate. I would cut myself and it, it seemed to Oh, just put me in this hole of like, this is, this is what it is for me. You know, this is, this is all that I have and it's not going to change. You know, if it hasn't changed yet, it's not going to change.
1: Lindsay, your words are really so heartbreaking and I'm, I'm so moved by thinking of you as that little girl. And even now as an adult with children, of your own. While you're going back into this pain, I can see you um, wanting to love that little girl that you were and wishing things had been different for her. And I know that there are listeners who perhaps are going right back there with you because they lived in similar circumstances and they're leaning on this message and hanging on to your words to see, okay, how did you get to where you are right now? But before you got here, you still had some really hard places to travel. So tell us about that, what some of the other things that you experienced during that time. I did end up
0: finding people that I felt were people like me. Um, people who dealt with addiction or whose parents dealt with addiction or who felt like outcasts Um, and I found acceptance with them and they were called juggalos and juggalettes and I guess the best way to describe them was they were fans of a music group called the Insane Clown Posse and so Being with them, I didn't feel alone that much because I did still struggle with my thoughts of suicide and my issues at home. But when I was with them, I knew that they had experienced a lot of what I experienced. And to put it in words, they they were a mess, just like I was a mess. And so we hung on each other for support through these people. I found my first boyfriend and he actually introduced me to heroin and at first, you know, I wasn't really sure what this was. I wasn't sure what heroin was. I wasn't sure what, how serious it was. Um, and it just made me feel like everything was okay. That. I could conquer the world. That I was okay. That I was going to be okay. You know, I. It. It made me feel like as long as I, as I'm taking this, I can take on anything, and I'm going to make it through. This was what I was. I thought I was searching for my whole life was this feeling of adequacy and um, strength and acceptance and being lovable. But it turned out that this was just the beginning of a downward spiral. And it just kind of hit me out of nowhere. After this point of my life,
1: we have uh, several interviews in our Help and Hope audio library on our Mark Inc. website that uh, also are stories about addiction and breaking free from addiction. But only after drugs have been so destructive. One of our guests, uh, I asked her, why is it that a drug addict is willing to just destroy everything in their lives in order to have that next fix? And she said that a drug addict is always chasing that first high, that feeling of euphoria, that all is right with the world, which is really what you just described, it seems like. It seems like heroin filled that in your heart, at least temporarily. But what happened next? Was heroin really enough?
0: Well, in 2007, um, I was 21, and I gave birth to my first son, Anthony. And during this time, um, during my pregnancy and the first few months of my son's life, I... I didn't use drugs, I wasn't smoking, I wasn't doing anything like that, Um, but a few months after my son, about three to five months after my son was born, I relapsed, and at this time, once again I was very alone, and my addiction became much more than heroin, but I was also using crack cocaine. and. This just led to day after day of, yeah, chasing this drug, chasing this high. And it's not so much that we set out willing to destroy our lives, or at least for me, I was very much hopeless, even at a time where I should have been enjoying my newborn son and loving being a, a a new time mother i still felt that void inside and i used drugs to fill that void because at that time i felt that that's that's all i was worth and that's all i was going to get out of life and so in 2008 about a, a year later i went on a binge using crack cocaine and that lasted for a few days. And I remember being in my room at the in the early hours of the morning and I ran out of the drug and reality started coming back to me and I was just so disgusted with myself and with where my life was and realizing that All that I had longed and hoped for since I was a little child, I, I had not gained an inch towards the life that I wanted and so longed for. And I have this little baby that's depending upon me and I couldn't be there at all, at all. I was just so disgusted with myself and ashamed. And once again, the thoughts of suicide ran strong. And despite having my newborn son in the next room and my mom in the house, I went and got a bottle of sleeping pills and I went to my room and I put on music and I just took a bunch of the sleeping pills, hoping that this would be it, that this would release me from my anguish of just never being good enough, never being worthy Never having the motivation or the determination to do better or to get better. Never having joy. You know, this This was going to release me from that. And everything was going to be okay then. Uh, it's amazing because I look back now and I realize that even before I knew who God was, by his mercy he he worked in in my life and as i was sitting there and feeling myself kind of just floating away and losing you know sense of reality th- my phone rang and i picked up the phone i don't know why i picked up the phone i i, I can't answer that i don't know if i was too out of it um but it was one of my old friends, Mary was her name, and she could tell by the sound of my voice that something was wrong. And so I'll, I would learn later um, that she had shut down the store that she was working with, was working at, um, and she came straight to my house um, and took me, rushed me to the hospital. And there they had to stabilize me. And she stayed with me the whole time. I wasn't allowed to leave. I had to go to a psychiatric ward, which they did take me to the Wilmington Psychiatric Ward. And I stayed there for eight days. And I still just felt that hopelessness. They didn't do much about it there. And after the eighth day, I was released and I went home and I went straight back to the drugs
1: and my addiction. You know, Lindsay, as I'm listening to your story, it's almost like a domino effect where, um, you know, the first domino falls where you're born into a family where there's so much brokenness. Then you uh, go through school and you're bullied and you're tormented. And that's another domino. And then Having your father reenter your life, and just one right after the other, and so drugs, chasing that high. I mean, just the fact that after being in the psychiatric hospital for eight days, you went right back to the drugs. Has to communicate to people how difficult this is and how hard this is once you are addicted. I mean, like you said, you had every reason to enjoy life but you couldn't there was because the inside was broken but an addiction you have to be able to support it somehow you have to be able to pay for those drugs so how how were you able to support that addiction yeah so
0: shortly after um, I was released from the hospital and jumped back into my addiction I met my second boyfriend and From the very beginning, our relationship was based on drugs, heroin. And so we both were not working. Uh, And so we knew that for the sake of continuing our addiction, we had to support ourselves somehow or support our addiction somehow. So he had introduced me to a criminal lifestyle to where... I would be the lookout as he broke into houses, and that was the way that we thought we could support our drug addiction. We would steal people's possessions or money or whatever we could find and then go to pawn shops and pawn them. Um, and that's how we stayed high from day to day. And so as this spiraled down deeper and deeper into this, into this lifestyle, I believe that I can't remember how I found out, but I know that there was an investigation with the police to where they were looking for us. And so when I was made aware of that, I left my home completely. I left my son. I left everything and went on the streets homeless. And we lived in Wilmington and also Philly, Philadelphia. And so being on the streets and sleeping in abandoned houses and um, not eating, you know, because all of our money mainly went to drugs, this just drained me Physically, emotionally, mentally. I mean, if I wasn't already drained, this just brought me down so low. And I still remember thinking, you know, as long as I have the heroin, I, you know, I i can do this. I can take one step in front of the other. I may not know what tomorrow brings, but as long as I have, you know, my heroin, it's going to be OK. I'm going to make it. And, you know, here I am homeless on the streets and just so my brain was so (laughs) destroyed at, you know, thinking, destroyed by the drugs and thinking that I could continue on like this despite um, where my life was. And so eventually it got to the point to where heroin just was not enough. I became so tired of trying to find the means of getting heroin and finding the means of getting the money and transportation. I just it drained me so much that I realized that this was not this was not making it for me like I heroin was no longer satisfying that void within me. And thoughts of suicide began to creep in again. And I remember walking up Limestone Road one day, trying to find an empty house to break into and thinking to myself, death would be better than this. You know, this is this is. I will never get back to life on my own. I will never get back to a life worth living. I don't even want to go back to a life worth living because I don't have it in me. And I was ashamed. And whenever I had to face reality, I could not. And the thoughts of death consumed me. And I believed that at that time that death was going to be better than life. And... I remember at this moment thinking there's absolutely no lower that I can go mentally, physically, emotionally. There is no lower that I can go. And I started to think about God and I had no idea if he was real or not. But in that moment, I started to beg him to be real. And I remember thinking in my mind, please, you have to be real because I will never save myself. But if you're real, I need you to save me. I need you to be real. And I will never forget those words. I will never forget that moment. And I just desperately cried out to a God that I didn't even know to save me. And so at this point, we had gone into the house that we found and we were burglarizing the house and there were bushes surrounding the house. And I saw a police officer walk through the bushes. And I knew that we would have to run. Um, but for some reason we stayed in the house and we went down into the basement part of the house and eventually, you know, with canine units and multiple officers, we had been found and arrested and I was taken to, um, Baylor women's prison. And so at this time, I was still in that same mindset of how am I going to get out of here? You know, how am I going to get back to my heroin? You know, I I have to get out of here and get back to that. (laughs) Little did I know, being incarcerated, getting arrested, and being incarcerated was actually an answer to prayer.
1: You know, as I'm listening to you describe so clearly what you experienced, I'm thinking about the emotions you had. And I mean, even when you're hiding in the basement and knowing that it's over, that you're not going to get out of this one, I'm thinking your story should be a movie or a book because I think that a reader would be on the edge of her seat wondering what's next. You know, How could you say that incarceration was an answer to prayer? So I'd really like to hear an answer to that question. How was incarceration an answer to your plea to God that he needed to be real for you?
0: Well, it was about a week into my incarceration, and um, I had just been hit with the information from one of the detectives that Not only was I faced with the four charges that I was brought in on, but there were 73 other charges that were added to my um, sheet of charges. And I was just devastated. I knew that I was not going to be going anywhere for a long time. And I remember going back to my room and I was sitting on my bed and a woman came up to me That I had seen in the unit, like I had seen her during that past week, but we hadn't talked before. Um, She had come up to me with a Bible and she told me, this is for you. Um, I marked out some scriptures with paper and just in case you wanted to read it. And so I took it from her and I'm thinking, you know, not really thinking much of anything about it but sitting there, I mean, I had, I really had nothing else to do. So I opened the Bible and I'm sitting on my bed and I started to read the Bible. And I, in that moment, I remembered my prayer. I remembered my desperate plea to this God that I didn't know. And as I read, it's as if scales fell from my eyes, and a light bulb came on, and I started to cry. For the first time in my life, I was crying tears of joy, and I said out loud, you're real. You're real. You answered my prayer, and you're real, and I don't, I don't know how I knew. I just knew when I read the Word, I, everything just came rushing at me, and I was so filled in that moment, knowing he, he's real. This is, this is the answer. He's the answer. And I know it in my heart and in my soul, I knew it. And for the first time in my life, my soul was satisfied. And from that point on, um, I spent two years and nine months incarcerated And without really having anyone to minister to me and without really having the freedom to do, you know, what I wanted to do or see who I wanted to see, of course, the Holy Spirit ministered to me in the word, in prayer. um, And I grew so much during that time. And so by September of 2013, um, it was time to leave there. I was released to come home.
1: I can imagine that day that you walked out of the prison and to go home, but would things be the way you wanted them to be? You're leaving the prison a different person than when you walked in. So, But tell us about some of the things that happened in prison that you consider treasures or evidence that the Lord was with you and answering your prayers for help.
0: Yes. So when I first got incarcerated, I was told that I was five months pregnant with my second child, Chloe. Um, She was born completely healthy. And through prayer, God had answered another prayer in providing my cousin to care for her until I was able to come home. And my mom took care of my son, Anthony, also until I was able to come home. And during my time in jail, I had such a zeal, you know, for the Lord. And I shared that with my family. And the response I got wasn't what I thought I was going to get. They were very much in line with thinking, okay, well, this happens to everyone who goes to jail, that you find Jesus when you're in jail. And so that was a little discouraging for me. But I. Just began to pray to God um, that He would provide me with in you know, friends and family with that that had a love for him, like I did, who I could fellowship with and grow with. And so, yeah, with my family rejecting, kind of rejecting my faith as something that was so serious, that was, you know, the focal point of my life now, it, that's what led me to praying for that. When I had come to the end of my incarceration, about in the last six months of my stay, I was at the Women's Crest, which is an inpatient drug treatment facility. And there was a volunteer couple that would come in and I would go every time they came in every week that I could. So I remember them asking for us to pray for their son, who also struggled with addiction, And so a few months later, um, about two months before I was supposed to be released to come home, their son actually came in and was there one night during the Bible study they held. And he got up to share his testimony about how he was saved and how God had pulled him from the pit and released him from bondage to addiction. And through him through this time of him giving his testimony, he and I locked eyes and we realized we knew each other from our past. And it turns out that he and I had used drugs earlier. Um, His name was Doug Clark. And after he was done giving his testimony, I went up to him and we were just both so amazed that we knew each other before Christ. And now we could see each other. After the work that he had done in our lives. Um, and it was just an amazing answer to my prayer. I mean, how perfect was that, you know, that I could share in that and just praise God for the work he had done in his life also. So once I was released a couple months later, um, I started attending Bible studies at his parents' home. And so as I attended Bible study and got to know Doug more, we became best friends. And before we knew it, um, we had fallen in love. And we both realized that God had brought us together for his purpose. And so his parents also went to another prison called the Bill Robinson Facility in New Jersey. And his mom asked me if I wanted to come and share my testimony with the women there. And of course, I jumped right on that. So, you know, to share my hope in Christ with them was was just an honor for me to be able to do. So we all went, and this was March 4th of 2014, and I gave my testimony and At the end of my testimony, I had asked if anyone had any questions or, you know, anything they wanted to say or share, and Doug raised his hand and said he had a question, and he comes all the way up front, and of course, I'm thinking he's going to do something silly. I wasn't sure what he was going to do, but as he came and stopped at the front, he knelt on one knee, and he proposed to me, and so... We were married on June 9th of 2014. And I have to say that, you know, still to this day, just looking back on all those events that happened, even from my very, you know, the beginning of my life, I can just see God, you know, in all of it. And so that's why I get emotional, because I realize just who He is and that He's just amazing. So.
1: Well, earlier I said your life should be a movie, and if it were, this would be the uh, high point. You know, the music would be, there would be a great crescendo of this fabulous music, and you and Doug would kiss and hold hands and walk off into the sunset to start a brand new chapter of life that was going to be perfect. But we know that's really not what always happens. In fact, it rarely happens. Um, So what were some of the struggles that are residual con- consequences from your drug addiction. Like I said before, um, the maternal side of my
0: family had actually rejected my faith and my walk with Christ. And they held on to that even after I had come home. And eventually they just completely rejected me and Doug. And so there were many battles, court battles. And me fighting for my kids and custody of my kids through it all. I mean, some of some of the darkest days of my life during that time, you know, and nights of crying, you know, and praying um, and all the pain that I went through with, you know, having my children potentially being taken from me. Um, God was just doing an amazing work there and through every court battle, every court case, every court date, God fought on our behalf. And it strengthened my faith so much because we were having people come against us with, you know, slandering our character and lying about us. I mean, it was, we were fighting against things that just weren't true and we had to trust the Lord. And He just proved to be faithful again. And today, um, Anthony and Chloe are in my custody and Anthony has been adopted by Doug. And we gave birth to our third child in September of 2016. And his name is Zeke. Through that, God had gave me the opportunity. He's given me the opportunity to raise my child from infancy and be the mother that I wasn't allowed to be. And I couldn't be with Anthony and Chloe. So through all of this, it's just, he's, oh, I just, I, I look back and I'm like, I, I never thought I would have made it here. I desired for this and God has blessed me richly. And I did nothing to deserve it. But he has just fulfilled everything that he's placed within my heart and being a mother and being a wife and being happy and accepted by him and having worth in his eyes. And so now where I'm at with my life is I am a mother and a wife, but I also go to school and I'll be graduating in spring of 2019 um, with a major in Christian counseling. And I have a heart for people who suffer with addiction and depression. I don't know where the Lord, you know, I don't know where he's going to lead me, but that's the desire that's in my heart now. And although, you know, I still go through struggles every day and, you know, we still face court in the future, I know who he is, who he says he is. And it just now I can look toward the future and I can stand in the present by his grace and know that he is who he says he is and that it will be okay, and that I can go forward rejoicing. So it's a beautiful thing.
1: (laughs) I'm Sharon Batters, and you have been listening to this powerful story that is part of our Help and Hope Audio Resource Library that is produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. You can find more stories like Lindsay's when you go to markinc.org and click the Help and Hope link. In fact not only has Lindsay shared her story but you heard her talk about her husband Doug and Doug has shared his story with us through Mark Inc. Ministries. So you can find his story on the Mark Inc. website as well. You'll also discover many, many free resources that offer help and hope to hurting people, each one designed to address those really painful places that are often experienced in isolation and where we desperately need someone ahead of us in the journey to call back and to offer us the help and hope that we so desperately need. You can go to markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find these resources, but you can also contact us for help and hope. If you would like to speak with Lindsay or Doug, if you leave a message through our website, we will respond quickly and put you in touch with them. We appreciate so much that you have listened to this story and we pray that as you have listened, God will use it to offer you the help and hope that only Jesus can give.